welcome to the Wesley Memorial Podcast. Join us this Sunday at 1225 Chestnut Drive in High Point. Visit us on the web at wesleymemorial.org. Now here is this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of St. Mark. Our text for the morning is found in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 and following. We are finishing a short sermon series this morning, inspired by Timothy Keller's book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. The question that we will be reflecting upon this morning is, why is there suffering and evil in the world? Or another, perhaps more theological way of asking that question is, why does a loving God, a God who is both all-loving and all-powerful, allow for the suffering and the evil in the world? To begin our time together, we will be looking at one of the most dramatic events in the life of Jesus. It's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Mark chapter 14, I begin reading at verse 32. Jesus and his disciples went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray. He took with him Peter and James and John, and Jesus began to be distressed and agitated. And Jesus said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And then Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup, this suffering, from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Not what I will, but what you will. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. As a pastor for 30 plus years now, I've seen more than my fair share of suffering in the world. I could tell you a lot of stories, some of them rather dramatic, about some of the suffering that I've seen. We all experience suffering. It's part of the human condition. It's part of our journey through our life on this earth. And over the years, I've frequently, almost on a weekly basis, encountered people who ask the question, why is there suffering and evil in the world? Why does a God that's all love and a God that's all powerful not stop it, not do something to make life a little better for us as we define better? I've noticed over the years that when people ask this question, they're usually asking it for one of two reasons. Sometimes it's simply an intellectual exercise. 
Sometimes they're asking this question because they want to know philosophically how do you reconcile a good God, an all-powerful God, with the evil and the suffering that's encountered in this world. And there's a lot that can be said intellectually to offer a philosophical answer to this dilemma. There have been people throughout the history of the Jewish and the Christian faith who want to say that the existence of pain and suffering in the world somehow disproves the reality of God. I would submit to you that some of the best work that's been done for the last 2,500 years in Judaism and Christianity would actually say that the existence of pain and suffering in the world does not disprove the existence of God, but rather it is part of what we use, if we feel so inclined, to prove the existence of God. We cannot really know what evil is, define evil, unless we have some concept of what goodness is all about. Where does that concept of goodness come from? We could not really paint a picture of human suffering if we didn't know a little about what human flourishing looks like. Where does that image come from? Throughout the history of the Christian community, we, we say that these definitions, these images of good or, or peace or pain-free living or whatever comes from that yearning that's been placed within each one of our hearts for a different world. We have those standards written upon our hearts. We have those dreams written upon our hearts. And we have a yearning that this world somehow will never, never fulfill for us. So if that yearning in us is there, that must mean there's something out there to fulfill the yearning. The fact that, that we have hunger says that somehow there's a way to quench the hunger. So the fact that we live somewhat a life of travail on this planet tells us there's something else because we know something about the dream. We know something about the way life is supposed to be. We know something about the garden even though we've been cast out of the garden. So we could talk at length as to how Pain and suffering in the world is not a disproof for God, but may help us find God and help us make sense of the world. But I don't really want to spend much time with that this morning. If that kind of intellectual exercise excites you, I, I commend the rest of Timothy Keller's book to you, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. We have just brought four sermons to you inspired by that book. Uh, there's a lot in that book that will help you make a defense for the faith to a skeptical world. So I commend Timothy Keller's book to you if you need more of a philosophical answer as to how we reconcile the goodness of God with the evil and the pain of this world. Also, by the way, would perhaps send you towards C.S. Lewis and his, his first work of Christian defense entitled The Problem of Pain. That was his first book, The Problem of Pain. And he does a good job, I think, of answering the dilemma. How do you take a good God that's all-powerful and still end up with a world, at least for the time being, that 
has to suffer and has to deal with evil. Perhaps, perhaps life is such a wonderful gift, high-valued gift, that our pain is part of the cost of having life in this world. But if you're interested in the philosophical reasons for reconciling this difficulty, I do commend these other two books for you. Most of the time, though, when people ask the question, why is there suffering and evil in the world? Why does a loving, all-powerful God allow this? They're actually asking it not out of intellectual curiosity, but because of an existential reality. They're either experiencing the suffering or the results of evil, or they're watching others experience suffering and the results of evil, or they're watching someone they love experience the results of suffering and evil. Most of the time when we ask this question, it's because we're in the midst of it. It's because of the suffering we've experienced in life. For a long time now, for many, many weeks, uh, we here at Wesley Memorial every Wednesday when we gather at Vespers for prayer in that brief service over in the chapel have offered prayers for, for Rachel, Rachel Milliardi, sweet, beautiful young girl here in the community. I met her several months ago when I conducted a wedding here in the sanctuary and she was part of the wedding party. Rachel was a beautiful, beautiful 20-year-old. She's beautiful on the inside she was devoted to her faith, read the Bible every day, and she was beautiful on the outside. And we've been praying for a really long time that she would find her healing from the cancer. And as many of you know, uh, she passed away, I believe it was maybe on Friday. The funeral's this afternoon, 2 o'clock, over at Green Street Church. And there are a lot of people who have watched her for well over two years, I think, suffer with cancer. And they keep asking the question, Why? And it's a valid question. We need to be honest about that question. And we need to make sure that we know how to deal with ourselves and with other people when they ask that question. Because most of the time, they're asking that question from a position of pain. I wanted to share two things with you this morning as we think about that question. Why pain and suffering? Why does our great God who can do all things, who is all-loving, not take it away from us? at least sometime this week, take it away from us. And I approach what I want to say about pain and suffering with two categories. I want to start by saying that we need to know what we don't know. Sometimes one of the wisest things we can ever do is to know what we don't know. Sometimes we don't know it, but that doesn't prevent us from pontificating and being dogmatic to the world around us. There's quite a bit about life that we don't know. There's quite a bit about suffering that we don't know. For instance, when I look at suffering, any particular instance of suffering in any particular life, I have to be mindful that there are many, many places from whence suffering can come. In the Christian community for 2,000 years, we have talked about the existence of the unholy trinity, we know about the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. But we've talked for 2,000 years about the unholy Trinity. We've talked about sin, flesh, and the devil. And for me, that's helpful because that reminds me that there are powers at work in the world other than just God. 
There are things at work in the world that comes from sin, flesh, and the devil. What the Christian community has always meant by sin, flesh, and the devil is this. Sin is our brokenness. The brokenness that we have as human beings and the brokenness of creation. That's why we aren't perfect. Our bodies fail us. The older we get, perhaps the more they fail us. Creation's not perfect. That's why a hurricane, tornado is not an act of God, but a result of fallen creation around us. Paul says even creation groans and travails for, for the day when we will all be made new. So sin is our brokenness. The kingdom has not come yet. We're out of the garden now. We have been cast out of paradise. We will get back one day, but we're a broken people in a broken creation. And that causes much of the pain and suffering in the world. So that sin, flesh, again, is just not just our evil, but just our sheer brokenness. We have evil, our sin. We have our brokenness with our sin. We have our brokenness, our frailty, our imperfections with our flesh. Flesh is just a Pauline way. Paul wrote that. That's just Paul's way of saying, again, our natures are not perfect. I think we know that. So there's sin and there's flesh, and probably the bulk of the suffering in the world is because of the suffering that we inflict on ourselves and on each other because of sin and flesh, our brokenness, our own evil, sin and flesh. And then there's the devil. We Christians have always talked about the devil. We profess faith in Jesus Christ, but we also profess that we believe in the devil. Every time we stand and gustily sing a hymn like a mighty fortress is our God, we use that line that says, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Great hymn from Martin Luther. We've always said that there's another systemic, cosmic form of evil in the world outside of ourselves, outside of creation. So sin, flesh, and the devil. Now, the devil certainly is not equal with God. He's very much not equal with God. But the devil is an accuser, is a tormentor. That's the powers of darkness that seeks to undo us. So suffering and pain, evil in the world, can come from just sin, flesh, our nature, and the devil. And we know, though, that God can superintend over everything. God rules over all, at least ultimately. We know that even sin, flesh, and the devil must bow and bend before God, ultimately. And we know that God can even use sin, flesh, and the devil to bring about God's purposes in this world. But there's a mystery at the core of how suffering and evil happens in the world. There's mystery at the core as to how God can use it for God's purposes in the world. So we need to know that we don't always know why one particular person is suffering in one particular way, at least most of the time. Sometimes we just suffer because of our own stupidity and what we do to each other. But oftentimes we can't make sense of the suffering around us. And that's why when we look at any given situation we need to be careful not pontificate and be sure to not tell the people around us that we know why they're suffering because we don't. 
It comes from many different places, and God is involved in many different ways. Remember the book of Job, his three friends, and I put the word friends in quotation marks, his three friends, the the book of Job calls them his miserable comforters. Remember, they showed up after Job entered his tremendous suffering. They showed up and they sat silent for seven days. That was their best time when they sat silent for seven days. But after seven days, they felt led to start talking. And chapter after chapter after chapter, the book of Job is 42 chapters. His miserable comforters are trying to explain Job's suffering to him. I think the book of Job is given to us for many reasons. That's one of them, so that we will not imitate those miserable comforters. I know sometimes we just think we have to say something. Well, we really don't. Please avoid the cliches. Please avoid theologizing in ways that makes God look like a monster, that makes God look like the author of evil. We know that's not right. So we don't know always why someone's suffering. We need to be careful about trying to define someone's suffering for that person. Sometimes one of the wisest things we can do is know what we don't know. But then we need to hang out and grab hold of and tenaciously hold what we do know. And there are things in the Christian community that we say we do know. We believe in God. We believe in a God that has spoken We believe a God that has revealed God's self to us. Had God not revealed God's self to us, we mere mortals would know nothing about God. But we believe in a God, a God who has spoken, a God who has revealed God's self to us. That's the role of Scripture in the Christian's life. There's general revelation. We can look at the beauty of creation and believe that there's a God, come to the conclusion that's a God. You can't look at a forest and determine that Jesus died for you. That's special revelation. That takes the book. But we believe in God, a God who has spoken, a God who seeks to reveal himself to to God's creation. So there are some things we do know that are important to us when we head into suffering and think about the evil in the world. We do know that God has entered our suffering with us. That's the core conviction of the Christian community. God became incarnate. He took on flesh. He came at a particular point in history to a particular locale. He entered our experience with us. And that somehow, this is the mystery at the core of the Christian conviction, somehow God's entering suffering with us has transformed all of suffering. And now we see suffering differently. Because God entered suffering with us. Think about God in the flesh there in the garden of Gethsemane. Facing his own suffering. The son of God facing his own suffering. Praying that God would take it away from him. That he wouldn't have to go through the agony. But he still concluded to the father. That the father's will was preeminent over his will in the human flesh. So God has entered with us into the predicament. It's like the old story in the book of Daniel with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They're thrown in the fiery furnace. You remember the story. The most important part of that story is when they're thrown in the fiery furnace, you remember what happens. Those outside the furnace looked in and they saw a fourth person 
Someone they had not thrown in the fire. They saw a fourth person there in the fire. God gets in the fire, in the furnace with us. And somehow that makes all the difference in the world. We can hold on to that. We know that. He is with us in our suffering. And that somehow that transforms suffering. We know that God is love. We know that God is good. At the center of our faith is a cross. It's a cross that's empty. It's a cross that says that God did what God alone could do for us when we could not do what we needed most for ourselves. And God did for us what only God could do in coming among us in human flesh and then dying our death for us. The greatest example, the epitome of love is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not some syrupy romance from the human experience. Love for us is the one upon the cross. Suffering on our behalf, entering our suffering with us. Love for us looks like Jesus dying for us, doing what we need. That's love for us. So we know that God is good and God is love. Don't ever let circumstances cause you to doubt that. God is good. God is love. And we know that God's love will prevail one day. We pray for the coming of the kingdom, and it's not come yet. We see glimpses of God's reign, rule breaking into human history, but the fullness of the kingdom's not here yet. So we continue to pray, thy will be done on earth, as it's right now being done in heaven. We know that the cross in our midst is an empty cross because we're reminded of resurrection. So not only is God a God of love, we know because of the resurrection that God will ultimately prevail. We know that the worst thing is never the last thing because of our conviction about resurrection. So we know that God will prevail. We can believe Romans 8, 28 when the Apostle Paul says that all things work together for good. Notice Paul does not say all things are good. Sin, flesh, and the devil's at work. Paul says we know that all things work together for good. Not to everyone, but to those who love God and they're called according to his purpose. So God is superintending sin, flesh, and the devil. All the brokenness in our midst, all the systemic, systemic cosmic evil in our midst to ultimately get us home, to ultimately get us safe, to make everything okay. I want to conclude with just three, three, maybe four short quotations to illustrate this. In J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series, in the return of the king, Gamgee discovers that his, his mentor Gandalf is not dead. And Gamgee says this, to Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Yes, Gamgee, everything sad is going to come untrue one day. In Dostoevsky's Brother Karamazov, the author has one of the brothers, Ivan, say this, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for 
that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, of all that blood that has ever been shed. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says this, Some people say that there's some worldly suffering that no future bliss can make up for, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even our agonies into glory. But perhaps the most important quotation I want to leave you with is John the Revelator at the end of the book, the last book of the Bible, Revelation. He sees a vision of how it's all going to end. And John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had all passed away. God himself will be with them, will be with us. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, from our eyes. Death will be no more mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have all passed away. Pain is perhaps the price we pay for being alive. Life is a high-value item, and it does come at a cost. And we don't see clearly yet in this world, but one day, one day, life will make sense. So when you're in the midst of suffering, try, and I know it's hard, try not to be too disturbed by what you don't know, and try to hold tenaciously onto what you do know.